we're learning more and more about the coronation of King Charles III, the first coronation of many of our lifetimes that will be quote unquote smaller, shorter, and sooner than his mother's before him. Plus, we've got a juicy interview with Valentine Lowe about the role of courtiers in the royal family that you won't want to miss. All that and so much more right here on episode 73 of Podcast Royal. Welcome back to Podcast Royal. I am Rachel. I've got my friend Jessica here, who is fresh back from New York City, and I'm dying to know how it was. Well, it was a really great trip. Thank you for asking, Rachel. Uh, we So I went with my mom and sister. We did a girl's trip, and we were there for about four days, and I think we saw almost every part of the city and we ate really great food did some shopping we saw a broadway play so you know it was the full new york experience um and i have to say if you're debating on taking a trip to new york october is a great time of year to go the weather Mm -hmm. was beautiful i bet i haven't been in new york city in gosh eight years and that's a problem i need to get back there soon Yeah, it had been since before the pandemic for me. So I was excited to go again. Um, But yeah, we had a great time. So what were you up to while I was gone? Not much, really. I was just thinking, gosh, what do I have to report about what I've been doing? And so the Sarah Ferguson, Duchess of York piece went live on Marie Claire. So that happened. That Mm. was good. And she had a birthday. She, yeah, we actually, so I think I mentioned on here that the piece was going to go live on September 6th but we were waiting on an image that we lacked. And then of course the queen passed away and we, of course, out of respect, how that story would, would have fallen on deaf ears during that time. And we waited until the Royal mourning period was over. And by the time that happened, we said, let's just make it around her birthday, which was October 15th. So we put the story out on October 13th and I really enjoyed talking to her. She was lovely, authentic, real. It just, a wonderful 30 minute conversation that I'll never forget. Well, congratulations on that story. I was really excited for you when you told me about that. Um, And happy birthday to Frankie. Yes. And I think you told me just a moment ago that Eugenie posted some photos of Fergie for her birthday. She did. Yeah. We saw some of her with, um, with her family, both of her daughters. And I believe there was maybe one with a grandchild in there somewhere. Um, So they were really sweet, a really nice little uh, birthday message to her mom. Well, one of the nuggets that I really enjoyed from the interview with her is that she, of course, has two and potentially more to come grandchildren, August and Sienna, and uh, from one from each of her two daughters. And she has a goal in year 63. She just turned 63 a couple of days ago to be super grand and get very, very fit. And so I'm actually, I'm not a grandmother. I'm not even a mother, but I am also on a fitness journey right now. So she and I can uh, get fit together, even though we'll probably never speak again. Unfortunately, I wish we would. I would love to be her friend, but um, from afar, we will, we will both be on the same path, just different situations. Well, I love it. Um, Well, I'm excited about today's chat. Um, Why don't we go ahead and get started? We've got a lot to talk about today. So we're going to kick it off with the big news of the episode, and that is the coronation of King Charles III. Um, 
listeners, I'm sure you've heard, Rachel, I'm sure you've heard, we have a date. So the coronation will take place on May 6th. 2023. I know there was a lot of speculation recently on when we might see it happen. Some people were guessing June. I know May and June are both really nice weather months for the UK. So I was kind of thinking it would be somewhere around that time of year. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what we can expect from this event based on what we've heard in recent days. So we know it's going to happen at Westminster Abbey. And of course, this is a very popular place for royal events. Royal coronation ceremonies have been conducted here since the year 1066. Can you even imagine that, Rachel? Like how many years that is? That's, yeah, that's, that's, wow. Well, unsurprisingly, you know, there's a lot of tradition and pomp and circumstance that is usually around royal coronations. Um, This year, though, we may see something a little bit different. Um, It is sounding like King Charles will be making some modern day changes to his coronation. Um, So we'll kind of wait and see what that looks like. But we do have a few ideas just based on what we've heard. Um, I know jumping back a little bit for comparison, I know a lot of our listeners have seen images from Queen Elizabeth II's royal coronation. Um, Again, that was in June of 1953. So That event, as a refresher, it lasted three hours, and there were over 8,000 invited guests in attendance. And I say invited because 8,000 isn't just the number of the public out in the streets hoping to catch a glimpse of this. I mean, these were actually invited guests in attendance. Um, So, I mean, that's a huge event. And just for comparison, you know, William and Kate got married in Westminster Abbey. Their wedding was just under 2,000. And that felt like a really big event there as well. So I don't think we're going to see 8,000 at Charles Coronation. And I'll tell you why. So it has been said that he is going to scale things down a bit. We're expecting a one-hour ceremony with around 2,000 invited guests in attendance at Westminster Abbey. So quite a bit smaller. And I'm wondering, Rachel, your initial reaction to this, do you think that's a good thing or do you think it's a mistake to scale it down that much? Oh, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think even 2,000, because it has, I'm pretty sure it's been confirmed that it will be 2,000 at the coronation, which is if, you know, even I can do this simple math, 25% of the queen's coronation. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the UK right now. Um, Prices across the board are skyrocketing. Um, They're having a lot of issues with the economy right now. And so this coronation absolutely should be scaled down because to do a grand coronation like the queen's would feel extremely out of touch. And I, I think some people, hopefully not too many people, but some people probably not listening to this podcast think that the monarchy is already out of touch and already outdated. And I think that scaling it back, I mean, I still think 2000 people is a ton of people. I rem- if, if, you know, that's a good comparison point to William and Kate's wedding, which was also at the Abbey and that that's a ton of people. And, um, I just, I still think that's large, but yes, I think it's definitely the right thing to do. It, it fits with the mood of where the country is right now. It should be smaller. It should be more scaled back, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, I think 2000 sounds like quite a cutback from 8000, but I'm having a hard time even imagining where you find 8,000 people to come to. Right. I mean, that is right. so huge. Um, I think for me, it feels really appropriate for a modern day cor coronation ceremony, like you said. Um, personally, though, I do feel a little sad to see it cut back so much because this is such a historic event, event that we, you know, we really don't get to experience it very often at all. Um, on one hand, I do have a hard time imagining if people today can even sit through a three-hour event. Um, but on the other hand, I do hate to see it scale back so much and maybe miss out on some of those really important traditions that take place during the ceremony, especially for people who, you know, are really into that kind of thing. Um, but it does feel appropriate for a 2023 event. I agree. So for what we know now, um, William is said to be playing a key part in helping plan this event, which I thought was a really fun fact to have. I think that's really cool that he's uh, taken on this role. Mm -hmm. And I actually couldn't help but laugh when, when I heard this news. I just imagined him calling his mother-in-law, Carol, for event <laughs> planning advice. You know, she... Um, is the owner of party pieces. So he's got some good connections there. And I wonder if there's going to be a coronation line coming out from party pieces and if we'll see any. I, I mean, I'm joking. I, I doubt this, no, but I really I mean, hope there is. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I could foresee like a core. I, let me rephrase. I could receive, I could totally see a coronation line coming out from party pieces for your coronation party that everyone around the world will have, but I don't think there will be any party pieces um, at, at the Abbey on basis. <laughs> Um, no. I, I think I think most of the things there will be a little bit older and a little bit a little bit grander. We may see some of the public out, you know, having a picnic <laughs> with their party pieces, uh, that, which, which I think would be really fun to see. Uh -huh. uh, but so, listeners, if you're wondering what we can expect from a William planned event, we will likely see a less formal dress code than in the past. So that means we may not see the big velvet coronation robes. You know, again, I think that's kind of a bummer. I personally like the over-the-top fancy traditions, um, but we'll see what they come up with. We also will probably see them modernize some of the old language typically used during a coronation ceremony. And it has been reported they're planning to incorporate more diversity into the religious and cultural aspects of the event. So, you know, I, I do see William having a hand in helping Charles orchestrate some of those pieces. And I want to say really quickly that William will essentially play the role in helping his father plan his coronation that Philip played to help his wife plan her coronation so many years ago. So um, it, it seems that uh, William is, is stepping into that role that Philip did, which of course was memorialized on the crown and uh, in dozens of books about the coronation. Yeah, and I, I think that's really cool to see him in that role because we know one day he'll be in Charles' seat. So he'll get kind of an up-close view of that whole process, which I think is mm -hmm. really neat. Mm -hmm. um, we also don't expect to see Charles to hold a court of claims or the presentation of the gold ingots. But okay, let's be honest, unless you are a coronation fanatic or a royal historian, I would venture to say most of our generation and younger probably aren't familiar with these parts of the ceremony or what they're supposed to look like. So 
most people watching this may not miss that part, um, but that's an example of some of the things they may cut from a three-hour event. Yeah, and and like you said, I doubt that most people will even miss it. And one hour is a long attention span for modern times anyway. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so what exactly can you expect to see during this event? Let's talk through that. Charles is expected to use the ever so fancy gold state coach. This coach was actually recently refurbished for Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee celebrations earlier this year. So I think it's really nice to be able to use this for the coronation. I mean, that only makes sense to me. And for those of us that like the pomp and circumstance, I think we'll be really excited to see that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that will probably be one of the more opulent things that will that we will see on that day. Definitely. And of course, it's no surprise, we will be able to watch this event on television. Um, most people do know Queen Elizabeth's coronation was the first ever televised. And for that event, there were 27 million viewers that tuned in to see her coronation. Um, so I think it'll be really interesting to think about what we'll see for Charles in 2023. Now that television is such a normal part of everyday life for people, you know, I was thinking we've had huge turnouts for royal weddings, um, jubilees, the queen's funeral. Um, I'll be really curious to see what happens for Charles' coronation. And I'm wondering, Rachel, do you think we'll see the same sort of crowds in the streets for his coronation like we've seen at maybe the Platinum Jubilee or, or some of the weddings over the past decade? I don't know if we'll see Platinum Jubilee level crowds, but I I will tell you, what are we now, about six weeks into King Charles III's reign? And I've been incredibly impressed with the mood and the acceptance of Charles. I was genuinely concerned about that because I didn't know how, Charles is a polarizing figure. I didn't, as so is Camilla. I did not know how they would be received, but it really feels like they, like things are going well and, and that their reign is off to a good start. I don't, I definitely don't think it will be platinum Jubilee style. Or I, I'm not even sure it will be Royal wedding, but I do think that people will turn out and I've, you know, already heard about some fanatic Royal followers. Like we are booking plane tickets and getting over there for the event because it is historic. It is the first coronation in 70 years. And so if it just history on just looking at it from a historical perspective, this is a part of history that will forever be documented. So I I've just been, I have to say, I've been very impressed and very pleased with how, how Charles is doing so far in the public perception, but um, will it be platinum Jubilee levels? I don't think so. I have to agree with you. I don't think we'll see quite the crowds that we saw at the platinum Jubilee, but I do think there's been a renewed interest in the monarchy in recent years. And I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's no secret. The crown has brought a lot more uh, royal fans or lack thereof, maybe to the to the top. But I think I think more than anything, it, it does have people interested in um, in some of these traditions, and, and especially people outside of the UK that weren't familiar um, with them before, or maybe didn't follow them. I think we'll I think we'll see a pretty good turnout. And and I agree, Rachel. I have been impressed with 
um, what we've seen so far. And I feel like there's been a pretty good acceptance. So I think so too, but you say that about the crown and then season five is going to drop in a couple of weeks and it's going to be about the nineties and everybody's going to probably hate Charles and Camilla after that season. So there might be a huge downturn in attendance after that. They'll have six months to get over it before May. So well, and that's why I said some fans, maybe some not so much, but either way, there's been there's been a peaked interest here recently. So we'll see, we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is not only a big day for Charles; it is also a really big day for his queen. So Camilla will be crowned queen consort alongside King Charles on May the sixth. You know, the last time a queen consort was crowned with her husband was in 1937 at the coronation of King George VI and his wife, the Queen Mother, who you may know as King Charles' grandmother. So it's Mm. been quite a while. Um, And there's been a little bit of buzz in the media um, around Camilla uh, in attendance at the coronation. And I just want to brush over this really quick because listeners may have heard, but I don't, I'm not really sure how this became a, a topic, but people have been speculating on which crown she'll wear. Um, so there's actually a crown that was made for the Queen Mother to wear at the coronation of King George VI. Um, and, and some people have wondered if Camilla will wear this at um, King Charles' coronation. The reason it's been buzzing or, or controversial is because this crown contains a diamond from the crown jewels. Um, and it's a really, really big diamond. Um, so I'll give you a little bit of backstory on it. It's actually been in headpieces of other Queens of England throughout the years. Um, but most recently it was in this crown for the queen mother. Um, it is a 105 carat diamond. It was originally mined in India hundreds of years ago. And following its first discovery, it bounced around to several countries that claimed ownership of it. So we saw Persia, we even saw Afghanistan claim ownership. Um, But most recently, um, a British-owned trade company uh, took possession of the diamond from India in the 1800s. They brought it back to England, um, and it's been there ever since. It's been owned by England. It's been part of the crown jewels for years now. And so there's been a lot of buzz around um, if, if this came out at the coronation, could it cause tensions or could people be um, making claims to ownership of it again? And, mm-hmm. you know, of course, we don't know what will happen. Um, but one little fun fact I'll ask you, Rachel, do you want to take a guess on how much this diamond is worth? Ooh, I'm not really a diamond connoisseur. I should, I wish I was more of one, um, but I'll say $272 million. All right. So for a 105 carat diamond, it That's is a valued- big diamond, man. That's a big diamond. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's been valued at $591 million. Oh my gosh. I claim ownership of that diamond too. <laughs> um, wow. And the crown that it's actually currently set in also contains an additional 2,203 brilliant cut diamonds and 662 rose cut diamonds. So this is quite a sparkly crown, I have to say. I mean, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Mike, can you imagine being Camilla and the pressure? I mean, I don't think she's going to wear it, first of all. That's my opinion. But if she did, imagine the pressure of wearing that on your head. What if you drop it? You know, what if it falls off your, I don't know. That's, I don't think she's going to wear it for, for, because of the controversy surrounding it, but man, that's an expensive crown. My goodness. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we have a lot to look forward to for May 6th. There's lots of things to get excited about. I know we're both looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, before I pass it over to you for some other royal news, I do want to mention May 6th is also um, Archie's birthday. So that's another component here. We'll wait to see if Harry and Meghan decide to come over to the UK for the event or how they'll um, manage, you know, Archie's birthday alongside the coronation and, and being there for Charles' big day. I don't know. Do you have any predictions, Rachel? Will we see them? I think so. I hope so, because we have kind of a precedent set because they did come over for the Platinum Jubilee, which was during Lily's birthday. Lily's first birthday was June 4th, which was right in the middle of it. Now, I don't think that the Sussexes actually attended any Platinum Jubilee events that day, but they they were there. So I think if we use that precedent as a model, plus this is Harry's dad, you know, it's his dad. It's arguably the biggest moment of his dad's life. I have written a story for Marie Claire. However, I don't, you know, I take this with a grain of salt. We'll see what happens. But I've heard that Harry would refuse to attend a coronation at Westminster Abbey, of course, which is where this coronation is going to be. If Charles and Camilla were crowned side by side, which they will be, um, unlike Philip before her, Philip was not crowned alongside his wife. So, but Camilla will be crowned alongside Charles. I want to have, I have one more point about Camilla that I've learned as well. So currently she is queen consort Camilla, which was the, so backing up to 2005, when Charles and Camilla were married, it was understood back then that she would be princess consort. Her image hadn't fully been rehabilitated back in 2005. Now, all these 17 years later, of course, in February, before she died, the queen said it was her wish for Camilla to be queen consort. Camilla. Well, now um, it, it, that's a little bit of a mouthful. I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but um, other queen consorts before her have just simply gone by queen and then their given name, like take the queen mother before she was the queen mother. She was just Queen Elizabeth. And so um, I've also heard that Buckingham Palace is very keen to kind of feel out the public perception of Camilla over the next seven months before the coronation. And gradually phase out that consort and just have her be Queen Camilla, like Queen Maxima or other European queens. So um, to answer your question about Archie, um, everybody's asking, was it was that date chosen as a snub to Harry and Meghan? No, I don't believe so. I think the date was most likely chosen because it's right before the state opening of parliament. And so I don't think that there is really any drama there. And I want to throw in just a couple more points. So the cor the coronation planning process is called Operation Golden Orb. So listeners, if you hear that said, that's what they're referring to. Um, and I, I, like I said before, I think this coronation is striking the right note and is more relatable and adaptable to modern times. And the last thing I want to say is we will have a guest next time that is great that we'll talk more about the coronation. So our um, our guest today that we'd already slotted in, um, he's fantastic. And we're not going to really be talking about the coronation, but um, stay tuned to our episode in two weeks. And we'll talk more about Charles's coronation and how it compares to the Queens before him. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, we'll wait and see. Um, I, you know, I think we'll probably see Harry and Meghan there, but um but we'll know more. The I think so. I really do. I to to miss that would be 
Um, I know it's their son's birthday, but it's one hour. It's one hour. The coronation is one hour. And I know that that's tricky, but to miss that, I think would be a really big mistake on their part. I think not even just for public relations purposes, forget that, but just that's your father, you know, and I know it's tricky, but I think, I do think we will see him and, and her there. I think they'll be there. Well, all right. I'm ready to hear a little bit about some other royals. I know you've got some fun stories to share. So why don't we jump into that? Well, not all of them are super fun, but this one is. So um, royals royals are traveling again. Um, you and Anne, Princess Anne, barely missed each other in New York City. She was there right before you, just a couple of days before you. She rode the Staten Island Ferry, which I've ridden. Have you ever ridden the Staten Island Ferry? No, I haven't. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. We went, we took it to see the Statue of Liberty. Um, then I want to talk about this. So Kate and William headed off to Northern Ireland, where the Princess of Wales came face to face with a heckler. Now, obviously, folks have plenty, including us, for that matter, plenty to say about the royal family, but it's generally not to their faces while on walkabouts or engagements. So not so in Northern Ireland, where on a walkabout outside Carrickfergus Castle, a woman, a very bold woman, I must say, said to Kate, quote, nice to meet you, but it would be better if it was in your own country. And then she added, Ireland belongs to the Irish. So Kate managed, I thought, to maintain her dignity and her composure. But I have done a little bit of digging. And, you know, I mean, I think most people know this, but maybe some listeners don't. As I've learned more about, I wrote a story about this. There's, there is a deep, deep, deep history here. So for those that may not be familiar, you know, we hear the words United Kingdom all the time, but do we ever think what makes up the United Kingdom? So the United Kingdom is made up of England, Scotland, and Wales, and Northern Ireland. And there has been ample controversy since England first occupied Ireland in the 1600s. And in 1920, in, which I didn't realize was that recently, but an act passed that split the country into Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and then the Republic of Ireland, or you know what we think of as Ireland, um, which is its own country. So Kate and William's visit to Northern Ireland marked their first visit there since becoming Prince and Princess of Wales last month. They hit multiple stops while there. They did a cocktail mixing contest, for example. Um, then their final stop was Carrickfergus, where Kate ran into the heckler. Um, that is about 12 miles outside of Belfast. So just wondering if you had any thoughts on this exchange and how Kate handled herself. Yeah, I watched it. Um, I saw a clip of it online and I watched it and I was really surprised that someone did that. You know, it's like, if you feel that way, why are you coming to this walkabout, which I don't know, I feel like that's that's for the fans of the Royals, but I thought Kate handled it really well. Um, I thought the comment was really in poor taste. Um, just, you know, really tacky to, to do that to someone. I mean, look, Kate is, she's working hard. She's doing her job. She doesn't have to go be there and, and she does it. Um, and she handled it really, really well with a lot of grace. Um, and I, I just was surprised that, that someone would have, would have made a comment like that to her face. So yeah, Thank to you. your point, people make comments, but, um, it's pretty bold to do it in front of the cameras, um, mm -hmm. like, like she did. And I don't, and we're moving on from to a new story, but I don't want to gloss over that this is seriously an, an, an issue that is extremely deep and, you know, could we could do a whole hour long podcast on tensions between Ireland and Northern Ireland, um, you know, Lord Mountbatten, all of the things, but so I don't want to be like, oh, we're just going to leave this here and, you know, but it's, it's, it's very deep, but still I agree 
that's not the the right place I don't think to, well to sort of a, you know, just a respect thing, right? Like we get it. There are tensions. It's like that in every country, right? There are people in in leadership positions that you may not like, but generally we have, we're pretty respectful to people, right? Um, When we, when we meet them. And I feel Mm -hmm. like that's kind of the normal, um, the normal way of, of going about things and carrying yourself. So I think that's why this got so much attention was people weren't expecting someone to do that. Yeah. I hope it's not the first of multiple hecklers because they don't normally get heckled to their face but you can't ever tell when someone shows up at a walkabout if they're going to be a heckler so well I hope not but um Prince Harry is one of many celebrities including Elton John Elizabeth Hurley and more suing associated newspapers I feel like we're always suing associated newspapers but the publisher of the Daily Mail the Mail on Sunday and Mail Online so this is actually really disturbing this group alleges an invasion of privacy it just including really egregious acts like placing listening devices in their cars and in their homes, recording private phone calls, and just tons of other really honestly disturbing activities. So we'll keep you updated on this lawsuit as it goes forward. And staying with the Sussexes, Harry, along with Megan, have launched a $1 million giving movement that's inspired by Megan's Archetypes podcast. Today, as we are recording on October 18th, the Paris Hilton episode just dropped. That was a really interesting episode um, where teenagers are asked to nominate a woman who inspired them. And if chosen, nominators will be able to give a $1,000 grant to their nominee. And finally, from the Sussex front, if you'll remember, Harry and Meghan were due to attend the Well Child Awards in London on the night of September 8th. Their plans obviously got thwarted by the Queen's death that same day. So to make up for it, Harry participated in a really adorable video call with some of the winners and revealed a little bit about the kids, which he doesn't do very often, but he revealed that Lily is learning to use her voice and speaking of voices, Archie's voice is a cute squeaky one so it's just always good to get you know more I like whether it's I will forever want to call them the Cambridge kids whether it's the Wales kids or the Sussex kids or the Mountbatten Windsor kids whatever so many so much confusion in this royal world around names but um it's just always good I think to get more details on the kids and we don't really hear much about Archie and Lily so I was going to say, I totally agree. Um, anytime you get any little, you know, a photo or something cute that the kids are up to, um, it's always fun to hear. So I, I saw that story as well. And I thought that was um, really sweet of him to share that. I agree. Well, we're going to move into a really brief segment to Royals around the world. So we don't, we haven't talked about the Netherlands in in a minute, I don't think. I know we haven't talked about Katharina Amalia in a minute. Um, I love her because she gave up her um, inheritance. She said, people deserve it more than me. Love her. But this is actually frightening news about her out of the Netherlands. So Dutch royal family heir, Princess Katharina Amalia, she attends the University of Amsterdam. She no longer is living in student housing due to threats made against her. She is the daughter of King Willem Alexander and Queen Maxima, and she was forced to move back home, which, you know, it's all relative, right? Her home is a castle, but still that's, you know, she wants to have the normal college experience, forced to move back home and apparently only leaves home, again, the castle for classes, which as her parents said, and I agree with this, just really tough for 
a young woman who's just trying to go to college, trying to fit in, trying to have as normal of an experience as one can have when you're the heir to the throne. I'm thinking about Prince William at St. Andrews and how, you know, how awful that would have been had something like this happened to him. It, it has to take an emotional toll. And I hope that normalcy and safety for that matter, but normalcy, whatever normal is for her will return soon and that she feels safe and is able to have as good of a college experience as possible. Had you heard about this? Yeah. And that is such a shame. I mean, you're right. You know, nobody should, should have to go through that. And, you know, someone who's trying to go and learn and, you know, get an education and make friends. And it's hard enough making friends as a Royal, I'm sure, um, you know, and, and to not to be able to have that sort of college experience that she was hoping to have is really, really disappointing. So I hate to hear that. Yeah. And it just makes me sick to think that someone's threatening her safety and that uh, I just, I just hope that it passes and that she's able to enjoy the rest of school and, you know, again, just have that rite of passage experience. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, so one more thing I want to mention in here before we move on to our interview with Valentine Lowe, um, Rachel, I know you saw this too. We were both scrolling today and we were super excited to see that Carol Middleton's party pieces <laughs> is expanding outside of the UK and coming to the United States. So if you are a US listener and you wanted to get your hands on her stuff, now is the time. I will say for the time being, she's only going to be in a New Jersey based company. <laughs> I'm <laughs> so, sorry. I love our New Jersey based listeners, but just imagine going to this drugstore in New Jersey. And I mean, and there's Carol Middleton and, and I mean, that would just totally blow me off my feet, but why hasn't this happened sooner is what I want to know. How, why did it take so long for party pieces to get to the United States? That's well, why. You know, I was actually, I didn't realize this, but this is the first expansion that they've done outside of the UK. So they're not even anywhere else in Europe. Um, so, you know, a big deal for, for Carol. I'm sure she's super excited about it. We're excited. Hopefully, if it's being sold in the US, we'll be able to somehow get it at some point. Um, but it's definitely not not down here in the South where we are yet. Um, hopefully, hopefully soon though. That's, that's really exciting. I love her stuff. It's really creative. Um, I've, I've checked her website out several times. Bring it to Publix, bring it to CVS, bring it to Walgreens. I'll bring shop. it to Target, right? Target. Oh, that is the best partnership ever. Why that's not happening. That is a million dollar partnership right there. Target executives get on that for sure. That is perfect pairing right there. Boom. Well, listeners, um, as Rachel said at the top of the episode, um, we've got a great conversation with Valentine Lowe. Um, we were so excited to talk to him. I know our listeners are too. His book has gotten a lot of buzz lately. Um, it's all about the world of courtiers, which honestly, I don't think a lot of Americans really know a lot about. So this is a great opportunity to educate yourself, um, maybe get some questions answered that you had for the author, because we had some great stuff to ask him. And so we hope you enjoy it. Take a listen. One royal book that has been generating plenty of buzz lately is Courtiers, The Hidden Power Behind the Crown by Valentine Lowe, royal correspondent 
for the Times. If you'll remember, it was he who broke the story of the bullying allegations against Megan in an article for the Times in 2021, just days before Megan and Harry's bombshell interview with Oprah Winfrey. Courtiers introduces readers to the members of royal staff that make the firm operate and is one of the most interesting royal books we've read in a long time. And we read a lot of royal books. Welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you here. Well, thank you very much for having me on. To get started, um, we your book goes into detail about this, writing in part, they live in the shadows, using their influence behind the scenes, not on the public stage. So we know these courtiers' names, everyone from Jamie Lowther Pinkerton to Robin Janvrin to Patrick Jeffson to so many others. But I'd love for you to explain to our listeners what a courtier is. A courtier is someone who advises a member of the royal family. They might uh, be their private secretary, in which case they do all sorts of things. They, they arrange their official diary. Um, they uh, write their speeches. They they act as a gatekeeper, sort of controlling who gets to see the member of the royal family, but they can also be uh, communications advisors, uh, and they can also look after the money. So in Buckingham Palace, the uh, the keeper of the privy purse, the person who looks after the monarch's money, is a very senior courtier. And in, in Buckingham Palace, you also have courtiers who look after the the sort of um, ceremonial aspects of things. But but the most important courtiers, the ones who I deal with really are primarily the, the private secretaries who in a way are the chiefs of staff of various members of the royal family. In the book, you describe the relationship between royal and courtier by asking who wields the power? To what extent do royal servants play the master? And who or what do they really serve? Can you explain that for us? Yes, the courtiers provide the advice, but the the member of the royal family doesn't always have to take that advice. Now, sometimes um, the courtiers have the, the upper hand. I mean, for instance, uh, when Prince Charles, as he was then, when he gave the interview to Jonathan Dimbleby, in which he admitted he'd been unfaithful to Diana, that was on the advice of his then private secretary, Richard Aylard. Now, after Charles did that, he came in for a lot of criticism. And some, some people said, why on earth did you do that? You've, you've laid yourself open to be, to be accused of you know, being an adulterous prince. Uh, and apparently at one dinner party, uh, Charles basically pointed his finger at Aylard and said, he made me do it. So there's definitely a sense in which um, courtiers you know, are powerful figures and, and help mold uh, their, their principles being the term for you know the, the royals who they work for uh -huh. but there's also a sense in which um these courtiers they don't have the final decision I and mean, there was we all know how in 1992 the queen finally agreed to pay income tax this was a very big decision in this country um and it it, it was the same year that of, of the uh, the windsor castle fire and the collapse of many of the marriages of the queen's children it was a bad mm -hmm. year uh, annas horribilis and right. the, seemingly under public pressure uh, the queen agreed to pay income tax uh, but what we didn't know was that in fact about some several years earlier one of our her most senior advisor an Australian chap called uh, Sir William Heseltine, Bill Heseltine, he 
said, uh, Your Majesty, I think it's about time you started paying tax. And she wasn't having it. It was too early. She wasn't ready to take that big step. So sometimes they can offer advice and it gets turned down. So it's a complicated picture about who wields the power. Well, and the book just really explains, you know, you 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 hear these names, you know that this the the courtier exists, but I've never thought about it as much as I thought about it when I read the book. And it and it's such a interesting, not only about obviously there's so many nuggets about the royal family in this book, but just about the job itself. And you write that most courtiers only last about eight or nine years in the job and that it's not good to go on for longer because of the stress of the work. So, I mean, obviously, logically, we can understand that. But why, why is that? What, how much stress really is involved in this job? Well, two things to say there. One is, of course, that some have lasted an awfully long time. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, Martin Charteris, who, who worked for the Queen. He first worked for her when she was still Princess Elizabeth. Uh, and then he stayed in that private office and he stayed all the way till the late 1970s. So he was there for a long time. Uh, but they often have a sort of a natural, a natural lifespan, particularly someone like a private secretary, because when they first come in, they're, they're the new thing, they're flavour of the month. They're, they're, they're exciting. They've got new ideas uh, and they have this amazing sort of honeymoon period when it's all fantastic and marvellous. And then, you know, they get to, to learn how to do the job. They build up a relationship with their person uh, and it's all kind of smooth running. But after a while, you, they spend such uh, so much of their time in very close contact with their principal. Mm -hmm. But eventually the relationship can become stale and people who were the flavor of the month at the beginning you know they pass their sell-by date that often happens it doesn't always happen i mean for instance um king charles's current private secretary uh, sir clive alderton he's been there for a long time uh, and he looks though he's very much there for the duration so you know they can last a long time but the relationship can grow tired. I mean, it happens in all walks of life, this. I mean, people not just in the royal, people working in the royal family, um, in other fields too. But uh, I think in a way that, that they can burn out after a while. Well, can you tell us how much a courtier gets paid? I mean, it certainly seems like it can't be enough for all that they do. Uh, I would have to look it up to remind myself how much they get paid. But I think the very senior ones... Um, we'll put it this way, they get a decent salary compared to what I earn, um, the very senior ones, but they can get a lot, lot more in the private sector. Uh, a lot of people mm. have joined the royal family uh, and taken uh, a significant pay cut. For instance, I'm thinking of um, Paddy Harvison, who used to do communications for Charles when he was Prince of Wales? Mm -hmm. He came. He he came from Manchester United. You know, the, one of the top football clubs in the world, uh, and head of comms there is going to be a well-paid job. He took a significant pay cut, I believe, uh, to come and work for Charles. Uh, another example is Michael Pete. So Michael Pete, who was Charles's private secretary, he stayed there for a long time. I think he was he worked for Charles for about ten years or so. I, I seem to remember. Uh, but he eventually he was an accountant by training, and I think he eventually left. Um, he probably had had enough, but also he left to go and earn some decent money. What I also noticed in the book, and just from 
again, again, reading about these these men in the press and you know not really reading about them but seeing their names and knowing what they look like these are mostly white men is that by design i know that they there have been efforts in recent years or even recent months to diversify at the palace but is that by design that these are mostly white men this is one of the big problems with the palace i think they the, their failure to to diversify i mean i think they've recognized it as being an issue quite a long time ago, but they've never succeeded in doing any, anything about it. Now, the, they've diversified the people who work there to some extent in that they're not nearly as posh as they used to be. Uh, they used to be very sort of aristocratic types. Um, men almost all went to Eton. Uh, they often served in one of the smarter uh, guards, regiments, or came from the foreign office. Um, sometimes they were part of a sort of courtier dynasties. Um, several examples of people who um, uh, whose family had served the royal family for a long time. Um, but uh, so they're now much more normal. They've they've come from all sorts of different fields, commercial fields, and so on, working for government or whatever. But it's still pretty pale, male, and stale. Um, <laughs> there are well very few uh, people from ethnic minorities. I think it's a significant issue. Uh, I think the, which is why when Meghan made that implicit accusation that the royal family was racist, it kind of, it kind of landed because they, they're so surrounded by all these sort of white people. Um, yeah. Uh, there have been one or two uh, black people who've, who've, who've served within the household, uh, but you can count them on the fingers of one hand in, in those in senior positions. Uh, and what's also interesting is that the Queen never had a male, sorry, never had a female principal private secretary. She, she, she had women working slightly lower down. For instance, Samantha Cohen was very prominent. Um, uh, but she was just an assistant private secretary. So the Queen's never had a male in the top job. Uh, Charles has never had a man in the top job. William, sorry, Charles has never had a woman in the top job. William has never had a woman in the top job. It's, it's, it's glaring. It's a glaring failure, that, I mm -hmm. think. So you told us a little bit about what a courier is. Can you describe a typical day in the life of a courier? Uh, I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure there is such a thing <laughs> as a, a typical uh, a day in the life of the courtier. It depends very much um, who you work for. Um, I mean, if you work for Charles, I think your day is pretty long and that you start off with um, meetings either person to person or on the phone quite early on. And the calls can continue until quite late at night. But you know, it depends you know, whether you've got meetings um, uh, in wherever your base, whichever palace it is, depends whether, whether you're on tour. I don't think there's such a thing as a, as a typical day. And of course, the courtiers who worked for the late Queen Mother, uh, their typical day uh, was very different indeed. Um, I think that often uh, revolved around lunch. You explain this, you, the term principal is, is basically essentially the member of the royal family. So be it the, the yeah. late Queen, now King Charles III, Prince William, at one point Prince Harry. So 
just high level and, and listeners, if you want to know more specifics about how each principal interacted with their courtier, um, can you break down the different royals relationships with their courtiers? For example, how did her, the late queen get along with her courtiers and now King Charles and what's what is their different relationships like? What I'd say about the late queen was that um, I think she was a, a very good person to work for. She was quite good uh, about listening to advice. She'd always want to listen to advice, even if it wasn't the answer she was seeking. Uh, and the people who worked for her um, learned to sort of decode her answers. Um, uh, if she said sort of, mm, let me see, that might be... Uh, that might be code for mm, I don't really think so, um, and, but often if, if if she was interested, she'd say to them, "Well, why don't you go and have a word with Philip about it?" And that was code for, "Well, this is an interesting idea, but you need to work on it a bit." And Philip would be a good person to work with. Um, Charles is interesting. He, I think, he's got quite a temper. Uh, someone described him as going to naught to sixty in a, in a flash. Um, but it's not necessarily directed at you, it's directed at a situation. But he, I think he calms down uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and a skillful courtier working for Charles knows the value of a sense of humour. If you can make him laugh, that's a great way of diff diffusing a situation. One of the interesting contrasts with William, I think, is that William has a much more uh, informal household. I mean, there have been times uh, when uh, he encouraged his staff not to wear suits if they, mm -hmm. weren't, if they weren't actually, you know, meeting someone that day or doing something more official uh, because he was based in Kensington Palace. It was also his family home. And he wanted, you know, his children were around and he wanted to have the, the feel of a family home. Uh, and there's also an interesting difference about how how the courtiers address their principles. I mean, with Charles, it was it was very straightforward. It was your Royal Highness first thing. After that, it was Sir, and last thing at night, it was your Royal Highness. William, it's much more likely uh, to be first name terms. It mm -hmm. depends on who the member of staff is, but I think those those senior people within his household, I think certainly in private, uh, probably still call him William, but again, it could change over time. There was also a very interesting vignette, which I, I kind of liked. It sort of said, said something about the relationship. In the very early days for William and Harry, when they first set up their household, it was incredibly informal, you know, William and Harry would be going around very informally dressed, sometimes wearing flip-flops. Uh, they sort of shared pizzas with their team. Um, but their team, they'd always wear ties, even though William and Harry definitely were not wearing ties, they'd wear ties. And when William and Harry came to the room, they'd get up. And William and Harry would say, no, 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 no please don't get up. Uh, but, these, but the team thought, this is what happens if you remember the royal family. People get up when you come in the room. So they've got to learn to get used to that. So they just carry on doing it. And William and Harry kept on saying, no, no, please don't get up. And eventually they just gave up because <laughs> these stubborn courtiers were going to carry on doing it. Um, and you can see the point. So the book ex 
explains uh, the relationship between many courtiers and their principals going all the way back to the early days of the Queen's reign. But of course, one of the most interesting courtier principal relationships examined is that of Meghan and her staff. From the beginning, you've had an insider look into her bullying allegations. Can you tell us what you learned from reporting on it from the Times and writing this book? Yes. I mean, what happened was that, you know, her most senior communications advisor, Jason Knuff, he wrote a memo to his immediate boss, uh, William's private secretary, saying that Megan was bullying staff. And what I uncovered was some people who had had a, a pretty rough time. Uh, and I uncovered examples of people saying, you know, when they were faced with a, a meeting with Megan and, and they were worried about what was going to happen, they'd say, I'm shaking uh, or I feel sick. You know, I, I, I can't bear this. Um, it was kind of a, a shocking realisation that's a sort of how her members of staff um, felt. And um, someone described to me how the, the, at least one member of staff was completely destroyed. Now, of course, you know, I was in the room. I can't say for certain, was Megan a bully? Was she not? But I do know that um, people who, some, of the, some of the people who worked with her had a rough time. There was one meeting when um, one member of staff was doing something, and I think their efforts um, weren't particularly appreciated by Megan. This was a meeting attended by other, by other people. Uh, and Megan said to her, uh, said to her um, Listen, if there was literally, literally anybody else I could get to do this, believe me, I would. And that's a crushing thing to say to anyone in a meeting. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think she, you know, I think it was, it, was, it was a very difficult period. Do you think that courtiers could have stopped what ultimately became Harry and Meghan's exit as working members of the royal family? That's a really good question. Uh, a lot of the debate about this has centered around, you know, what could have been done once Harry and Meghan uh, said they were off, you know, could some compromise have been found? Um, I don't think there was any compromise. I think that what Harry and Meghan wanted, Harry and Meghan were very unhappy. They felt sort of cornered, they felt misunderstood. Uh, and I don't think there was any compromise between what they wanted and what the royal family, and I do mean the family, not the courtiers, what the family uh, was prepared to offer, in particular what the Queen was prepared to countenance. But I think it could have been handled much, much better. I think there were signs early on about how unhappy they were, um, in the basically during the first year of Harry and Meghan's uh, marriage. Uh, and I don't think these signs were picked up on by the wider institution of the royal family uh, and I think what could have happened is that they would always have left somehow in some form but it could have been a lot more amicable and you could have avoided all the acrimony and all the unpleasantness if the, if this had been picked up on early if it had been flagged there'd been meetings which people discussed seriously uh, how to deal with Harry and Meghan's unhappiness um, and I think that was a serious failure uh, by the institution. Well, lastly, we want to ask you, how important do you think courtiers will be 
in the reign of King Charles III? I think they will always continue to be uh, very important. We've, we, we know who will be in charge in terms of cautious because they've said that Sir Clive Alston, who's a uh, long-standing private secretary, will be his private secretary as king. Um, and we also know that Sir Edward Young, who did the job for the Queen, he's going to stay on for a few months, but that's it. Uh, they'll be very, very important because they, they, they help shape a reign. The, the big decisions are taken by the royal member of the royal family themselves, in this case the king, but um, they help shape a reign, and I think they will continue to be important. Well, this is such a fascinating book, and I'm actually probably going to read it again a second time just to enjoy it instead of preparing for this interview. Was, I, not that I didn't enjoy it the first time, but I'm going <laughs> to just kind of sit back with it with a glass of wine this next time and 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 soak it all in. It was it's we read a lot of books around here and we love them all, but this one is a cut above the rest. Courtiers, That's the hidden power behind the crown is out now in the UK, and it is out January 24th of 2023 in the US. It is worth the wait, US listeners but you can pre-order it now. And Valentine, thank you so much for being here today. You are an expert journalist and we respect your work and what you do so much. Thank you very much indeed. Nice to be on the show. That was a great conversation and we just could have talked to him forever, but it, he's a legendary journalist. And this, you're right, this book is getting tons of buzz all over the place and it's got lots of juicy nuggets in it so pick up a copy uk listeners it's already out us listeners you have to wait till january but pre-order and uh it's worth the wait but thank you valentine for being here with us listeners don't forget to follow us on instagram at podcast row we're so close we're getting so close to hitting a milestone and i i really want to do that by uh Maybe, I don't know, maybe by the end of the month, we'll see. Um, email us with any thoughts you have at hellopodcastroyal at gmail.com and follow, rate, and review the show. We do love those five stars. Thank you. And thank you so much for tuning into episode 73 of Podcast Royal. We'll be back in two weeks with another great interview and all the royal news you need to know. Bye. Bye. Bye.